God has today to encourage us, to challenge us. Um, but before we start, I want to lead us in a time of prayer. God, um, we thank you so much for being um, a good father, for loving us when we are um, not lovable, and for being faithful when we are not faithful, God. And we, we want to mirror that in our lives, God. And so today, um, help us learn how to mirror that um, by caring for orphans, um, for loving the fatherless the way that you have loved us. Um, and so today we want to lift up these speakers, God, as they speak, um, let everything that they say be for your glory. Um, let them challenge and convict us um, as they share their testimonies um, and as they encourage us to seek you in caring for orphans. And for the rest of us, God, may we have open hearts, um, hearts that are soft 
um, and just desiring to be challenged to love you more and to love um, orphans and the fatherless more, God. We ask all of these things, um, not for our glory, God, but that your name can be known around the world. Amen.
um, we're just going to share a little bit of our um, kind of adoption stories. Um, both of us have adopted internationally. I have um, two children at home with me now that were both adopted from India. Our son Judah came home about two years ago, and Mercy came home last December. Um, and then we are in process for a third adoption, and we'll hopefully be in India um, in the new year. Um, my husband, Daniger, and I um, have adopted from Korea. Um, we um, brought our son Ephraim home last year, um, and then we are currently in process as well um, from Korea again, um, and we hope to bring our son home sometime next year is what we're shooting for. So, um, Our call to adopt is not just a choice that we make for growing our family, at least in my experience that wasn't the case. Um, we were in the middle of a study on the Holy Spirit, and if you want to be challenged, you say, Holy Spirit, I'll do whatever you want. Um, and the Holy Spirit just put on my heart um, the call to adopt, and um, you kind of don't know where to start. Um, and that is part of why we've gathered um, here today, um, to kind of start to develop a community of resource and support around um, what we might do to come together as a community that cares about the fatherless in our community, but also in, in the world. Um, when we are relying on the Spirit, our lives should be markedly different. We should look different than our non-believing um, neighbors, that um, our lives are, are not our own, but are transformed by who God is um, and what he has done for us. Um, through the adoption process, um, for us, in the waiting, um, in the the way you lay yourself bare um, in some of the documents and that sort of thing, it really is a process that God has used um, to, to transform us um, to be more like his son. Um, so I'm going to tell you a little bit of our story. Um, my husband and I um, had been married um, a little over five years um, when we felt God's call to adopt. Um, and um, I'm going to be really honest with you uh, right now that... Um, I was really loving life um, as just um, Daniger and I, and um, I didn't want kids. Um, I, <laughs> for selfish reasons, um, didn't want the burden of children. I didn't want um, to take care of somebody other than myself and my husband. Um, and it's funny how God works um, in saying that that may have been your plan A, but that's not my plan A. Um, and. Um, his planning included adoption. And I think um, that there's um, sometimes misconception about God's plan um, in that um, in the Garden of Eden, um, it was perfect communion with God. And um, then Adam and Eve sinned, and then there was the fall. Um, and I think that sometimes we think, oh, well, God had to conjure up a plan B um, to save a lost humanity. Um, and that's not what the Bible tells us. Um, Ephesians 1 tells us that before the foundation of the world, that God had predestined to adopt us through his son, Jesus. Um, and just the, the hope and the peace that comes with that, that knowing that even though our plan A may have looked differently, um, that God's plan A is perfect. We know that all of you have come to this room for different reasons. We have some professionals who um, work with adoptive and foster families day in and day out, serving the community in that way. There are some of you that have struggled through infertility and just desire to have children in your home. There are some of you that have bio children, biological children, um, but then also desire um, to, to grow your family through adoption. And 
God's plan is so big that it encompasses all of those things, and that um, we are just in awe of a wonderful God who chooses brokenness um, and broken situations um, to show his glory, um, and we are just excited to share with you that this morning. Um, yeah, so as most of you know, there is much joy, and there's much excitement, and there's love that comes with adoption, and I think a lot of times on the outside looking in, you tend to see those wonderful emotions that do come with um, adoption, um, but there's also brokenness that comes with adoption. Um, for me personally, um, as well as I would think any international adoption family, the wait is so hard, um, whether it's months or years. Um, you're missing birthdays, um, you're missing milestones, you're missing those first steps, those first words. Um, but in those moments um, of, of brokenness and hardness that God just really breaks through and shows you how he's sanctifying you through these moments. And um, I've just seen so much in, in both my husband and in, and in myself that he has grown us in patience and in, and in trusting in him that I don't think we may have learned in other ways. Um, there's brokenness in bonding and attachment. Um, I think you've waited so long for this child that um, on custody day you think there's going to be this immediate bond that happens, and um, that's usually not the case. Um, sometimes the child um, he may not even know what attachment is, and so um, them being able to attach to you is, is sometimes very difficult. Um, I'm going to be really honest with you again. Um, for me personally, um, I didn't feel that immediate bond right away um, with Ephraim. Um, you know, you've waited so long and you love them from a distance um, and, and that moment comes and you think you're going to immediately feel like a mom. Um, and I didn't and there was a lot of shame that I felt with that, but, but I don't think that there should be that that's part of, of the beauty of adoption in the brokenness and how God redeems through it. And um, he taught me so much about relying on him in those moments. Um, he taught me that um, he's going to provide the love and the joy that I need for my child, and he came through in amazing ways, and eventually um, the, the bond comes naturally. It really does. It may take time, but it, it does come. I feel like maybe we've been a little heavy-handed in, in talking about the, the brokenness. 99% of the time, I feel like we parent like most other parents, that the joy of parenting comes through in, in parents who um, parent um, after adoption or through foster care and those sorts of things. Um, but I think that there is an a, almost an appreciation or a, a different um, perspective we take because we know that our children are ours in every sense of the word as parents, but then um, very much so not ours. They belong to God and they were um, entrusted to us for this period for raising. And um, some of the brokenness um, happened before we got to meet them, right? So they had biological parents, and they have suffered um, or have um, lived through things that we will work with them to understand and to grow through for their lifetime. Um, but guys, the, the life that we get to live as, as parents to the, at least to my children, your children too, um, it's, it's 
so much joy compared to the heartache of the wait and um, helping them walk through and process through um, their past and their histories is one of the joys that we get um, because we too were broken and removed from our heavenly father and he didn't leave us there and say you're too far removed but brought us into his um, eternal family and we get to do that with our children kind of walk them through um, learning about their story and healing from some of that. Yeah, I think going along with that, too, that um, God chose us into his family not on the basis of anything that we have done. Um, And the same goes for our earthly adoption, that we're not choosing these children based on how healthy they are or how pretty they look, Um, but even in those those broken moments that... um, God's love just shines through knowing that um, they are loved and they are cherished just as we are loved and cherished by, by our Heavenly Father. And I think where there is loss and there is grief that comes with adoption, there's also hope. Where there is fear, there is a gained trust. It may take years, but it comes. Um, and where there is sacrifice, there is life. And I think that, that um, as sons and daughters of um, the Almighty God, that should give us hope um, going forward. Um, and I also think that there is just so much power in the love of God to bring brokenness, or I'm sorry, to bring healing from brokenness. And I think that um, just seeing that redeeming love that he has um, should be overflowing in, into, our, into our, our lives. I think something that comes up a lot when you talk about any kind of adoption, but maybe particularly international adoption is the cost. Um, you know, people are thinking dollar signs with big numbers behind them, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But I think um, the cost for your life, um, that you are surrendering, maybe your picture of a perfect family, or maybe the extra space you have in your home, or maybe just the comfort of that family vacation. You know, that there are lots of things that we sacrifice, but we look to um, our Heavenly Father and his sacrifice of his son, um, and he paid everything for us. What wouldn't we be willing to do um, for these children? Um, I think once the, the poor, the fatherless, the helpless um, have a name, that we can't keep that, them at arm's reach anymore, that we can't say that's a problem somewhere else, either somewhere else in town or somewhere else um, around the globe, that once we know um, that there are children who are um, in need of families and care, health care, food, um, that as Christ followers, we read in scripture that we are to care for those people. Um, and so when they are no longer at arm's reach, um, in my experience, they live in my home, and they share my bed, and they um, are my day-to-day life. And at that point, they aren't orphans anymore. That is just, those are just my kids. Um, but that as a community of people who have seen the impact that that makes, um, that we can come together and support other people in this, in this process and say, it is hard, but it is worth it, Um, and that we are willing to walk alongside each other and say, let's do this for God's glory. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that when we are um, submit, we we submit ourselves to the Spirit, and when we are obedient to God's will, um, that he is faithful um, in meeting our needs, um, uh, it reminds me of Philippians 4.19 that says, my God will meet all your needs according to the glorious riches in his son Christ Jesus. 
Um, and I think that when we are being obedient to the Spirit, um, that he, he comes through in ways that you, you may never have imagined. Um, one of my favorite um, adoption quotes is by um, David Platt. Um, it says, we don't adopt because we are rescuers. We adopt because we are rescued. And this, this is why we adopt. We don't adopt because of anything we have done. We adopt because of what Christ has done on our behalf at Calvary on the cross. Um, and that we, he, he's our rescuer, he's our redeemer. We are just simply called by a holy God to love and care for the least of these. So we don't know what God has called you to, um, but we believe that you need to do it. Um, if it is from him, it will be hard, but it will grow you. It will sanctify you, um, and it will grow your dependence on him. It will make you more like Christ. Um, and there's, <laughs> I'm just, I'm at a loss for words because um, I'm just so excited that you guys are here and are willing to say, okay, Lord, what's, what's the next step, or how can I get connected, or where are other people who are feeling this call as well? Um, the truth is that God is able. He does not ask if we are able. Um, and I just want to challenge each of you today. Um, are you willing? Will you please pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, you are so worthy of all honor and glory and praise. We praise you for not leaving us to our own that you desire to redeem, you desire to heal, you desire to restore, Father God. Um, and as weird as it may sound, that your plan A, including the fall of man and including the death of your son, is beautiful in seeing your heart for redemption, God. And, and ultimately, that, that's what that's what our earthly um, adoption should reflect, should mirror. Um, and God, we are just absolutely humbled to be a part of your work. Um, and um, we just praise you for um, your provision. We praise you for your faithfulness. Um, we praise you for um, choosing us and adopting us into your family. And God, I just pray right now that you would stir in the hearts of your people, um, that hearts would be transformed for the kingdom, God. Um, and that um, you would receive the glory and we would receive the joy. Dear Lord, we pray for the children um, who have yet to be identified, adopted, or fostered um, by the people in this room, Lord. We know that you um, have chosen children um, for these families um, and families for these children, and that you knew your plan um, since the beginning of time. Lord, um, we just pray for their safety. Um, right now, we pray for protection for their hearts, Lord. Um, and then we pray for um, willingness and obedience um, from their future parents and foster parents, Lord. Um, it is not easy, um, but Lord, we are, we are here wanting to learn, um, to grow, to be more like you, um, and to submit to who you are. It's in your son's holy name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Okay. Um, good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Kyle McKay. Um, I'm going to be moderating uh, the two panels that we have this morning. Um, we're going to be starting with uh, one on foster care. And so we hope to talk about some things that are just common questions that people have 
or just good things to consider and think about when you're thinking about these topics. And so, like I said, we're going to start with foster care, uh, and then we're going to have a break, and then we're going to do one on international adoption. Um, but before we get to the questions, um, I want each of these guys to introduce themselves. These are our panel. And um, so just very briefly, say who you are, and just briefly describe your foster care experience. So maybe how many years you've done it, the kids you've had, the ages they are, that sort of thing. So. Uh, my name is Caleb Billingsley. Uh, this is my wife, Kelly. We've been foster parents for going on four years. Um, we've had a, a, few, a few placements, a sibling uh, group, um, a teenage mother, new teenage mother, and we currently have a, uh, a two-year-old boy with uh, special needs. So we've had a lot of different experiences in our short time as foster parents. So All of that is true. <laughs> <laughs> um, my name is Gabriel Walder. This is my wife, Lindsay. We've been fostering for about four years now, too. Uh, we had a son, Martel, who we now adopted, and we got him when he was eight weeks old. And then we've had two placements um, besides that, one for about 10 months of a girl that was three when we got her, turned four, and then a little boy, um, X, who was two, and then turned three. Oh, uh, my name's Erin Fenelon, and I have, well, my husband is not here because he's at soccer with our kiddos this morning. And so, uh, as you'll learn, consistency is key with children in foster care. And when you get them out of routine, it doesn't go well for the rest of the day. So there is soccer with my husband. And uh, so I have a 13-year-old, a 12-year-old, a 10-year-old, and a 6-year-old. Maybe I will. Oh, sorry. It's working. <laughs> so uh, Asher was our very first placement. He is six, and he actually was a private adoption domestically. And then uh, we we got our foster care license five years ago, and we got a call for Lynette. And when we found out it was going to adoptions, we asked to get two of her older brothers so that we could keep part of the siblings together. All right. Thanks, you guys. Um, so first, uh, we're going to start with you, Lindsay. Um, just general overarching question, what exactly is foster care? That's a good question. Um, foster care is when um, a child or sibling group of children are removed from a home. They're the home with their biological parents or parent. And they, due to, could be a number of things. It could be abuse, neglect, um, domestic violence, substance abuse, etc., um, and they are placed into a certified home. Um, it also could be a relative placement as well, where they're placed in a home for the duration of time that it takes for their biological parents to kind of get back on their feet. Um, throughout the course of their placement with you, they have visits with their parents if they're involved, um, and and how it works. So you basically support the biological parents um, by caring for their most precious little people. Okay. Erin, um, I know you mentioned adoption. Um, sometimes kids are reunified with their parents, but sometimes it's adoption as well. So can you talk about um, how does adoption work into the foster care system? Uh, adoption works in the foster care system in uh, you are caring for their kids, but in our in our case, we also uh, 
really took and invested in the birth mom. And so we would write her letters, we would send home papers to her. We wanted her to feel like she was still a part of their life. And so um, I always say go to court whenever you're in the foster care system and there's a court date, go to court because you learn a lot about what's happening in the case. It's how you can get most of your information. You can see if the parents are doing what they're supposed to do. Um, so the judge tells the parent, you have nine months to a year to do the things that we've asked you to do, whether that's you know get clean off of drugs, take parenting classes, uh, a whole host of things that they're asked to do. And during that time, you care for their kiddos and love on them and support uh, the biological parent as best as you can. And then the judge makes a decision whether they've either completed the things that they were required to do or they haven't. And if they continue to not do the things that the judge has asked them to do, he will terminate rights. And at that time, uh, it usually takes about three months to get, to get the rights terminated. And then you'll have another court date where those rights are actually terminated and then you start the adoption process. With all that said, that usually takes between 12 and 24 months to once you get a placement and if the parent is not following what the judge has asked them to do and the surrendering of rights or the termination of rights usually takes between 12 months to 24 months. And then after that, uh, the adoption process can go anywhere from usually six to 18 months, depending on the situation. And so it is a process, but it is a journey that is beautiful, and it's a journey that God calls you to, and he'll walk you through it. Okay. Um, so, Kelly, let's assume that people have been thinking about these things. Maybe they're starting to feel a desire, a calling for foster care for doing that, like, once you have that desire sparked, where do you go from there? Like, what are some of the first steps you do? How do you get involved in foster care? That sort of thing. A great first step is to pray. Um, if you feel like you might want to be a foster parent, you should probably start praying about it like yesterday. <laughs> um, and ask your friends and family to pray with you and for you as you consider what your role in foster care might be. Um, but beyond that, do some research. Maybe read a book about foster care, um, especially talk to foster parents. Find some in your community or maybe in your church um, and just ask them about it. Ask them to tell you what it's like in their day-to-day -day life, um, what getting a new placement does to their family dynamic. Ask what it looks like to the biological children in their home. Um, yeah, ask them to share like the greatest blessings and the greatest challenges in foster care and ask them to be very open and honest with you <laughs> in their responses because it's helpful to know true information um, right off the bat. Yeah. Can I add on to that real quick? Yeah. yeah. One thing that uh, we found really helpful when we wanted to get into foster care is make a list of things that you can and cannot accept. So it is so easy when you get that call to just be like, yes, 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 I want to say yes, but you have to be realistic. You know, like, um, know what's important to you. Like, if you can't take a child with a medical issue, then you can't say yes to that. If you can't say yes to a sibling set and they've called you, Know, know your limitations. Know what you can do and know what you can't do. And have that list next to your phone. And have one person that you can call before you say yes. Because the, the person calling you on the other end, it's okay for you to say, can you please give me 10 minutes to pray and to call my, like, lifeline? <laughs> and they'll say, yes, I promise I will not let this baby go. Or I promise I won't let this 14-year-old go without hearing back from you. They're very, very patient with that. And so know that person that you can call that will say, Tell me what your list says. 
And if it doesn't match up, it's okay to say no because they will call and call and call. Um, Kelly, just adding a little bit more, could you speak a little bit to what the licensing process actually looks like? What's kind of the stages of that? Mm -hmm. um, the first step is to find a local agency that can help you start that process. I think the process is pretty similar across the board, but different agencies will have maybe different classes that you need to take. Um, when, we, when I started, I, I knew nothing. I didn't know any other foster parents, and I didn't even know what options there were for local agencies. So I actually just filled out an informational request um, on adoptuskids.org, and the first agency that called me back is what we just jumped in with. And so, um, <laughs> yeah, so the, the perfect way to get this process started is actually to talk to some of the representatives we have here from local agencies and programs and ministries who um, there are professionals here today to give you more information and tell you exactly what that process looks like. But it's usually a background check, getting fingerprinted, um, taking pretty intense training classes, and then uh, there's a home study process as well where they're in your home and just making sure that you're a fit and safe place for these children to be while they're away from their families. Okay. Thank you. Um, kind of coming back to you, Erin, what... What ultimately compelled you to, to start this process and to, to enter into foster care? Uh, Jeremy and I had been married 10 years when, uh, when we got our first call about our youngest son. But I think what compelled us even before that is Jeremy, before we got married, did a, not an internship, but he went on a mission trip for three months to Romania and worked in orphanages and with little kids and just the poor, and when we met, he had just gotten back from that, and I was in ministry, and uh, we just continued talking about, man, like, we have to do something, and we literally talked about it for 10 years. I'm so thankful for Rachel's transparency, because I loved it being Jeremy and I. <laughs> I loved us being able to do what we wanted to do and kind of have disposable incomes and, uh, you know, have fun, but we knew that God was calling us to something bigger and to something better, and it was always in our hearts, and we always talked about, oh, we want to adopt, we want to do foster care, but it wasn't until God literally had somebody call us and say, we have a four-day-old boy, are you and Jeremy willing to adopt? And we looked at each other and we said, okay, like, let's do this. And so uh, it, it just became for us a really, a, Bill Hybels just has a book called Holy Discontent, and it became our holy discontent. You know, he says in the book, it's like Popeye, you know, I can stands what I can't stands, but I can't stands it no more. It's like, what is that fire in your soul? What is that, what is that fire in your stomach that says, I just can't stand this anymore. I can't not do something. I can't not fight for the fatherless. I can't not want to do this any longer. And that's what happened when we saw what our first son, the poverty that he lived in and the condition that he came to us. We were broken for him and broken for his biological family. And Christ just called us. He said, there are so many more kids out there. Like, do something. And so Jeremy and I just literally, I think Asher was maybe four months old when we started to get our foster care license. And, uh, and it, was, it was the best decision that we ever felt called to. And it has been hard, and it has been trying, um, but it has been very, very eye-opening and very 
uh, great for our relationship with Christ and even for each other. We've grown closer as a couple because, I mean, you're in this together. I mean, when you go to bed at night and you look at each other and you're like, this happens again tomorrow. You know, like, you got to be a team. (laughs) You got to be willing to get up tomorrow and do it. So uh, that was kind of what compelled us. Cool. So, Gabe, I mean, what Aaron was just saying was a perfect segue into this, this idea of, like, foster care is very hard, very trying, very difficult, um, but there is a, a beauty in the sanctification process that it takes you on. And so, like, how have you seen foster care shape you into someone who resembles Christ more? It's still a process now, I would say for sure, but I think the biggest thing just comes to my mind right off the bat is dependency on God and on the Father. The reality is when you're working with these kids and they're in your house day in and day out, they become much more than a statistic, and you actually see the difficulty of their lives and things that they've gone through that are hard to imagine, uh, let alone see that has happened to such a young person. And so my, my walk with God has gotten closer just as a result of the necessity of the dependency that you have to have on him, um, not only with him, but even with Lindsay. I think he's brought us closer, um, and through that process, we've had to be dependent on him. Um, whether that looks like just being honest with the community, I think, is a big thing. Um, I think it's really easy when we're not in a vulnerable situation like that to just kind of put up a front. And even with God, for an example, you could keep him at a distance, but the reality is when you're in this raw, um, sort of honest state, you have to be um, vulnerable with the people around you and with God, and he can meet you in that spot. I think that's a huge way. Cool. Um, Kind of wrapping it up, Caleb, what are... Like when you think in terms of foster care and viewing it as mission and ministry, how, why is foster care important to the kingdom of God? Yeah, um, when we think about the kingdom of God, um, we have to make sure that we understand what the kingdom of God is, I think, first. Um, and, and the kingdom of God is certainly not a political kingdom, right? It's not an earthly kingdom in terms of a king or getting the right president or or even just getting a whole bunch more people to call themselves Christians, right? That That's not necessarily the, the kingdom of God. Uh, but the kingdom of God is when Christ invades individual hearts um, and turns them from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh, and then the Holy Spirit begins to sanctify and to work and to move and to change and his rule and his reign is the most important thing in that heart right so that he is on the throne of that heart and he is king over it and so when we think about foster care or adoption or any of these things the kingdom of God is really when when his rule when the kingdom of God is working in our hearts in it it is the outworking of the kingdom of God that leads us to foster care. And so as the king, as Christ is on the throne of our hearts, we begin to see, okay, we begin to ask better questions of, okay, how can I live this kingdom out in my community, in this world? And that leads us to do all kinds of crazy things, right, on mission for Christ, because we want this rule and this reign to be established in her heart and his heart and all of the hearts that are around us. And so thinking about foster care specifically, there's so many ways uh, that the kingdom of God can, can be um, 
spread and where the rule of Christ can be established in other hearts. I mean, obviously in the child, right? I mean, that's first and foremost. You have this child in your home. You have opportunities daily, hourly to minister to them, to talk about Christ, to point them to eternal things, to remind them, you know, if they're old enough of death and hell and judgment and the saving work of Christ. I mean, these are conversations that we have in our home all the time. Um, and they would never get that probably in, in, in the home that they came from. And so taking advantage of those repeated conversations, but also just uh, being able to communicate with the birth parents, any opportunity that you get to have gospel conversations about church, about faith. Um, we had an opportunity to just give, uh, to, we met with our the birth parents one time with our first placement and we were just, um, we just gave them a book. What is the gospel, right? We just we want, you have, we want you to have this. We didn't know at that point what the future was gonna hold for the kids, but we wanted them to know the truth, the gospel truth. They may never open the book, I don't know. But it's just another way, another inroad to uh, people's hearts with the gospel truth. And then, I mean, you have licensing workers, the agencies that you work with, so many uh, people coming in and out of your home, opportunities to share the gospel and to uh, pray that the kingdom of God would be established in all of these areas. And I mean, you just think about the effect that that would have on a community if the Christians in your community thought of their lives in kingdom perspective, that we would desire to see the rule of Christ in people's hearts, and uh, we would take steps to see that lived out. It would be truly amazing. So um, I hope that answers your question. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, those are all great thoughts, you guys. Thank you so much for participating in this panel. Um, this is going to end this first panel, and we're actually going to take a 15-minute break for you guys to get more coffee or snacks. There's tons of donuts, so please eat them. And um, just try to be back in your seats in 15 minutes so that we can start up the next panel. Thanks. All right. Thanks, you guys, for coming back. Um, uh, now we are going to get started with our international adoption panel. So um, like we did the first time, I want um, each of our panel participants to, to just introduce themselves and to share briefly about their own international adoption experience, what that's looked like. So. Hello, guys. Um, I'm Daniger. Rachel introduced herself earlier. Um, like she said, we have one son, Ephraim. We brought him home from Korea about a year and a half ago, and he's three, so he's, he's in the picture there with us. And we're in the process of adopting again from Korea um, a little boy we're going to call Isaiah, and he's um, two now, and he'll probably get to come home sometime next year. So that's us. Hi, I'm Jeremy. You guys met my wife earlier. Um, as she mentioned, we have two from India. Uh, Judah and Mercy, they are five and almost two, and then they're going to get a, new, a little sister, uh, Glory. Um, she's a month younger than Mercy is, um, and uh, so that'll be a lot of fun. Um, I am Jenny, and this is my husband, Jim. Um, we're the Eisenmangers, and uh, we have three biological kids, and um, went, we, we did foster care and actually had two failed domestic adoptions just for some of the reasons that that can happen. And 
then we decided to go international and went and uh, adopted a sibling set of two and then met a sibling set of three. So it was back a year later for them. Okay, awesome. So uh, we'll start with you, Rachel. Um, we talked a little bit earlier about the foster care process, how to get licensed and um, get started into that process. International adoption looks different. So can, can you start us off by just explaining what that process looks like? Um, yeah, I think um, the first thing you want to do is um, find an agency that um, works for your family. Um, that was the first step that we did. Um, and then it's going to look different depending on the agency and depending on which country you go through. Um, but the general process looks like um, you submit an application. Um, once you're approved, then um, you go through a paper pregnancy, they call, um, the paper chase of gathering a lot of documents. Um, they want to make sure that you are who you say you are. There's fingerprinting, background checks, those kinds of things. Um, and then you put that together. Um, Sometimes it's the home study first, that you have home visits, someone comes to your house, very similar to foster care. Um, and then um, once that's done, then you gather documents for a dossier that gets sent to the country. Um, and then once your paperwork is sent over there, then you, it's kind of the waiting process. And again, it's different depending on if you go waiting child, which we did with Isaiah this time, um, versus with Ephraim. This was when we just wait. And um, we would have to wait to get matched with a child. Um, and usually that's when you're matched. Um, and then that requires more fingerprinting and things and, and more waiting. Um, and then there's a court process um, in country. And um, depending on the country, sometimes someone goes as a representative for you. Um, I think India is that way. Um, and then for, um, I think Ethiopia, is that right? Um, no, Ethiopia is, um, you, you go to court. We're talking court. Okay, yeah, so two trips for us as well, Korea. Um, we have to go once over there, go to court, come back, um, wait to be um, approved, and then you go back for custody. So that's kind of, kind of what the process looks like. Did I miss anything? How, oh, are you gonna say something? Okay, um, I know you mentioned this briefly in your testimony earlier, but how long does that process tend to take? I mean, you mentioned waiting a couple times. Um, so first adoption, um, we did our application in November of 2013. Um, home study was completed in May of the following year, 2014, and then it took a whole year before we were matched. Uh, it just, yeah, total time from, from application to placement was, was a little over two years. Yeah, so 27 months. I guess I would just, there's many different ways that domestic adoption can happen. The same thing with international, but particularly with international, think about this. You got U.S. federal government, a state, an agency here, and then whatever country is, an agency, another state or government entity. So at a minimum, you got five different entities with paperwork and requirements, and they're all designed to protect the child and follow the laws, but that takes time. So, makes sense. Yeah. Um, Brittany, there's um, like we we heard uh, Rachel talk about waiting children. There's different terms that are used to describe um, the different children, where it's older children, special needs, waiting children. Can you just kind of parse out for us what the different terminology means 
given different countries that it might be even different in different countries, but could you just talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it definitely varies between um, your agencies and countries, but typically um, you're in inter international adoption, um, healthy infants um, can often be adopted inside their birth country, um, which is wonderful. Um, but a lot of the children who are available for international adoption are um, considered older children. Each country kind of it depends on their culture, what that is. Sometimes it's over the age of four. Sometimes it's over the age of seven or 10. It just kind of depends on the culture and, and the program. Um, Special needs, too, has um, a lot of different meanings. Um, all three of our adoptions are considered special needs um, adoptions. Um, but what that means in terms of the lifestyle of our family is, is very different. I think about 90% of our parenting is like just normal stuff. And then we've got, you know, our wife is on the wears a, a boot and it has hearing aids and that's about it. Like it isn't, it isn't a big part of our day-to-day -day life. Um, so a lot of those needs would be considered minor or correctable um, here in the United States. Um, but again, each country has different um, designations. So you see um, cleft palate, missing limbs, sometimes just other like deformities that for us weren't a huge deal. But as you go through the international process, you you get a list. It feels really weird, and you say yes, no, maybe to. I mean, like a hundred different things, um, and you know, just as a word to the wise, like just pray over those things. God knows who your child is, and if you mark the wrong thing, like He fixes that. I don't know how that happens, but He does, um, and you know, you'll get the, the right child. Um, so it's older children, and then waiting children are children who are paperwork ready, um, but haven't been matched with a family, not because they aren't ready, but there isn't a family who is willing to take them. Um, and so one of our placements was like that, where it was just. Our son had waited a long time, um, paperwork ready, um, and I, I, this is hard. Um, there are lots of wonderful children that are just children. They're babies. They're two, three, four, 12 years old um, that get overlooked because of all sorts of things, but those children are loved by our Heavenly Father and are definitely worthy of being in our homes. And... Aaron had some really wise advice about knowing what it is that you can handle um, and that what, what you're willing to um, live with. But at least in our experience, they're, they're just kids who might need just a little bit of help that, that doesn't impact your life a ton. And so don't discount that whole realm of special needs because um, we all have needs. I don't know why we call those unspecial. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Um, Jenny... Now, when it comes to transracial families, um, and this is relevant not only for international adoption, but for foster care as well, like how, how have you seen that affect and impact your family? Like how has that played out in your home? Um, well, this is an interesting one because um, it sort of depends on the perspective of, of the people within our family, how, how it affects them. But um, first of all, when we were first considering um, transracial adoption, we first spoke to um, some very respected friends who were African American. We wanted to first hear from them, from this family that we, we really care and respect, what they thought about it. And um, there would be many, of course, among various people, lots of opinions, but their particular one was that um, because of our um, center on Christ, that that would trump the other things. But they were also realistic with us about um, some of the realities there that we would need to be aware of. 
Um, now, our kids were adopted internationally, so they have a little bit, like they come into this culture not having experienced it as they would have had they been born here. So um, they came in with no awareness of the fight that still remains here in the United States for justice for all. And so that became a burden on us to educate ourselves because just because you have um, little children of color doesn't mean you know what's going on, right? You have to seek that out. You have Mm -hmm. to listen to people of color. You have to read books. You have to find book lists about justice and... um, and get that ingrained in, in part of your consciousness um, because it's not automatic. Um, when I asked my kids, because our kids, you saw the picture, they're older, we adopted them older, and um, at this point range in age from 11 to 21. I asked several of the older ones how they felt it affected their lives, that we were in a racial family, and they were all like, oh, I don't really actually feel like... like they couldn't really come up with a mm-hmm. with a concrete um, answer. I remember when we had just brought home um, one of our daughters, and she was six, and we listened to the Martin Luther King "I Have a Dream" speech, and you know the little part about embracing one another as little as brothers and sisters. And she looked at me, and she's like, "But we are brothers and sisters." You know, she didn't get it because she just didn't have that awareness. So then as their parents, we have to um, help them understand the culture that they are in um, in a way that we wouldn't be sensitive. On the one hand, we don't want to create um, a a sense of rejection of their new culture. But on the other hand, we need to be safe, and we need them to be aware, and um, we want to be part of the solution there of building new relationships and changing things. So um, that's been the biggest thing. I mean, and that goes from everything is super practical to making sure that we, you know, when I have two 19-year-old sons, when one of them leaves the house in his vehicle, I am more concerned than the other. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you want to use that mic? Oh, sure. So um, those kinds of conversations we've had to just be really um, diligent about and, again, getting input from friends who can help us in a way. You know, we just, we have to be aware, but we um, need other input from people of color who could help us with that. Mm -hmm. Uh, What I would add to that is that, uh, well, for us and for our kids, it's been very natural where they don't feel that way. You need to not kid yourselves and not think that that's just not an issue, that um, we'll accept them, we'll embrace them, so everything should be fine. And so I do think in order to be equipped, to be able to be equipped uh, to be an interracial family, you need to be at a place where you can accept that there is still institutional racism, that there is still injustice in America. And if you can't accept that, then you're really not ready. So you don't have to understand it, you don't have to know it, you don't have to, you just have to be willing to hear it and willing to understand that and be willing to take those first steps to, to know that it's there, to know that these are issues your kids will face. And just as a final thing, be prepared to, to have people who are close to you 
particularly within the church, within your family, who do not understand what you're trying to communicate with them when you talk about these these things. Um, People that you would think would completely um, come to um, an understanding of why things are important to your family, why certain um, issues are not something you can sort of overlook or um, be comfortable with. Um, And you would think it's pretty simple, but once you get into it, you'll recognize that a lot of people are, I guess, they they are not willing to examine their own hearts, and they're also not willing to accept that we still have a problem. So. Yeah, so that's, I mean, it's hard to navigate things like that. It's hard to navigate this process just with international adoption in general. But, um, Jeremy, what ultimately compelled you uh, to just not only pursue adoption, but pursue it internationally as well? Uh, Short answer would probably be the Holy Spirit. But the longer answer is Brittany had been, I don't know, probably a couple months worth of nagging me about it in a nice way. (laughs) In a nice way. Persistence. Um, But I just didn't feel it. we, We didn't have any kids. I'd always thought... We'll have biological kids first. We had talked about, you know, adoption, like maybe someday, whatever. Um, we'll get to it when we get to it kind of thing. Um, but uh, so I wouldn't say I was resistant to it. I got to a point to where I just said, okay, you clearly feel like we should be doing this. But, I mean, do what you got to do. Let's get the process started. I'll go along with it, and I'll be a willing participant, but um, I'm clearly not as excited as you are. Um, but we had a, uh, what do they call that, Adoption Sunday? Orphan Sunday. Orphan Sunday. There was an Orphan Sunday at our church. Um, they had it, what was that organization? She should have answered the question. <laughs> His little feet. <laughs> so there's a, uh, um, a children's choir of um, uh, kids from, from all around the world. And uh, I know... <laughs> this, I'm okay. <laughs> I was for sure this wasn't going to happen. Um, <clears throat> um, I know the Holy Spirit's inside of me. Um, I know that for a fact, so... I don't want that to detract from the way I describe this event. Um, but there was one, I don't even remember this song, but all the kids are up there and they sang a song and then they ran down through the congregation <clears throat> and this little girl from China came up and gave me a hug. And like I said, I, I know I have the Holy Spirit in me. Um, but the only way I can describe it is that she delivered that calling to me. Because it was like right then and there, I looked like this. <laughs> and uh, I was just like a blubbering fool. And I turned to, <laughs> I turned to Brittany and I, say, uh, I said, uh, I said, our kid's out there somewhere. We got to go get him. So we did. Um, 
But I wanted to add to, uh, just as kind of like a footnote, I had been called by God since third grade when I accepted Jesus as my Savior to care for widows and orphans. It just, it just took me almost, you know, 20 years to realize that that was important, I guess, to obey. Great. Denninger, like so much of what we've already heard has shown how there's gospel implications in adoption. Um, how has God grown your understanding of the gospel through it, and how has he changed your walk with Christ through, through adoption? Um, I think in my understanding of the gospel, you know, we read verses like in Ephesians where it says we'll be adopted as sons, and in Romans where um, Paul talks about being grafted in the, the Gentiles being grafted into the promises of, that the Israelites had for that God has for his people um, read those things and we talk about the uh, earthly relationships that um, that uh, God is our father in heaven and we are his children we're adopted and all these things um, and I think many people we, we, we talked earlier about the people see adoption as um something secondary or lesser or not as good. And I, I think I, I had things in my mind that, um, that that's just natural for people to think that. But um, And I think that also carries into our view of the gospel that um, you know, we are not fully his children or um, he's not fully our father or there's something lesser. And there's brokenness in the human relationships we have with um, parents and children and, you know, adoption as a result of some of that. There, it, it comes out of that. Um, but that doesn't carry into the what the Bible means when um, God is our Heavenly Father. And uh, I think um, getting Ephraim and him coming into our home, um, it just, it's real <laughs> that um, he's my son, and I'm his daddy. And um, God's perfection as a dad is way better than that. So that's, that, that just became real to me. Um, and, and seeing that part of the gospel just come alive. Um, and I, I think Gabe said earlier, too, the, the, the way that that's challenged me um, and it's, I'm sure, true in just parenting in general. Our reliance on God um, is very, very, very much strained, but we have a pretty comfortable, easy life. Um, I think that culturally, um, I think God has challenged me emotionally. He's challenged me. I, I've probably cried half a dozen times in my life. I got a little... I can attest. So uh, I, I think the, the emotional um, strain and reliance on God that's required from that is something awesome that um, God has challenged me with through this process. Um, and I think culturally, I think it's awesome just some of the things that come out of adoption. 
tomorrow I was going to pray about um, a family that's going to minister in um, Japan, and we sought them out because of the conspicuousness of um, us having an Asian son. We like we've we've purposefully made friends with people and just you know, randomly introduce ourselves in a crowd out of people and met some Koreans, and now we get to participate by knowing them in the gospel being spread in Japan because of God calling us to adopt from Korea. Who would know? And that's, that's just really cool to see. Yeah, praise God. Um, kind of piggybacking off of that, Jim, for you, um, how, and Caleb touched on this earlier with foster care, but in terms of adoption and even international adoption, what is the importance of that for, for the kingdom and for our, our ministry and mission for Christ? Well, I, I think it's a, a small piece of the heart of what the kingdom is. And Jesus was very intentional about talking about his kingdom. He, might, he probably spoke about his kingdom and bringing the kingdom to earth more than anything else he talked about. And, and so I think it is a small piece of caring for the least of these and seeing Christ in and serving Christ in serving those in need. And, and there's, you know, God could have sent Jesus into any time period, any place, any, anywhere. Uh, he sent him into a place of oppression under a ruthless regime to teenage parents who were so poor they couldn't afford the temple offering and, and offered the alternative. And it is the, that the kingdom is serving the least of these. And when Jesus spoke, it is, you know, he's asked, what does the kingdom look like? The first will be last. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the peacemakers. It's that turning upside down. And with, without that understanding, with, without that as our focus, I think the body of Christ is never going to reflect him. And so I think adoption is, as you've seen, it's a window into the beauty of serving Christ through those who are desperately in need. And that is the kingdom. That is, it's not a piece of, it's not a reflection of. That is everything about who Jesus was, where he was sent, why he was sent, what he did. And this makes it real. It puts a face on what and who that is. And that's why it's so emotional for all of us. And so there's a beauty to making that message real and helping us see that, um, you know, the... uh, when you hold the party, you don't invite your friends, invite the poor and the homeless. That, was, that wasn't a, a parable. That was just a direct, clear instruction. And you start putting faces on it, and you start realizing what he said was just a real way to live life. And that, that changes everything. So I think it's a critical piece of realizing what, uh, what the kingdom really is. When, when Jesus was asked to pray, the first thing is a praise and then a your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And, and this is just a little taste for me of what that should look like. And just to add on to that, um, after a little while, that term, even the least of these, which Jesus clearly used to help us understand this, starts to almost become distasteful because instead of becoming the, being the least, they are suddenly these children are everything. And, and, and the interesting thing is the same thing happens if you're caring for um, the lonely, 
or the homeless, when you actually um, see people as Christ and then care for them in that way, they're no longer to, in, in your heart that's reflecting Christ, they're no longer the least at all. And in fact, um, when, they're, when people then experience that love of Christ through you, um, they get a little moment to not feel like the least either. Um, so, you know, it extends far beyond. I mean, now our kids are just our kids, and there's just like, you know, any concept of them even having ever been orphans just fades so quickly because they're, they're just not. They're our kids. Um, but then experiencing it with other people, you know, in our own community, um, it's beautiful. We benefit so much from actually following after Christ. He knew that it would be best for all of us. So. Yeah, and I, um, I just maybe my last add-on to that would be that uh, there are so many ways to do it. And, and, you know, to come out of here inspired and uh, uh, get foster licensed or an adoption process, that's a wonderful thing, but there is so much more that you can do that is a first step. There is respite care. There is safe families. There are things you can do that are a first step that can put you into people's lives and make these connections and serve in this kind of way. Um, if you know an adoptive family, if you're considering this, offer to wash your kids once a week. You know, bring them to dinner. Uh, just get involved in people's lives. It doesn't have to be a binary on or off switch. There's so much you can do that steps beyond while well, money's needed, all well, those things, you know, writing a check, a day of service, getting involved in people's lives in a consistent, personal way. Um, it's, it's not a binary switch. You can really do it. And there, you know, I encourage you to, to talk to the organizations that are here, talk to people that are done. There are so many ways to take a first step that may be the only step you're called to and still be personally, intimately involved with people's lives and make those kind of connections. That's a great challenge. Um, thank you guys so much for participating in the panel. Um, that's going to wrap up the panel for now, um, but we're going to have, actually, Lindsay's going to come up, come up and give uh, a testimony. Okay. Good morning, everyone. Thanks so much for being here. Um, I'm here speaking with all of you wonderful people um, to share mine and my husband's journey through foster care. Um, the sweet ladies who organized this day asked me to share a testimony of sorts, um, to share about how the Lord has walked with my husband and I through the ups and the downs that is foster care. And like many of the sweet kids um, who enter the system, our story also began with loss. Um, but before I really get started, I'm just going to pray, mostly because I'm nervous. Um, <laughs> so just pray with me. Father God, we just... Thank you for the testimonies that have already been shared, um, for the ways that you work in our hearts, that you don't leave us lost. Um, you come find us down low. Um, God, I pray that now you would just season my words with salt, um, yeah, and would your Holy Spirit work in the hearts of the people here today. In Jesus' name, amen. So when Gabe and I were dating, um, I remember him telling me at one point that he needed to be honest about something. Um, he had always thought he would be an overseas missionary, and likely in the developing world somewhere. He had always um, kind of wanted to be in 
West Africa specifically and was studying abroad there and thought maybe the Lord would lead him there long term. So he sits me down and says, you know, I know you grew up always feeling supported and having everything you needed. I just want you to know that life with me might not look that way. I don't want you to be disappointed. Um, And at the time, I think I was really ignorant of uh, the strength that our culture possesses for convincing us that we always need more. Um, that was, that's a different talk, but um, my response to him at the time when we were about 20 years old was, if the Lord is leading us there, then that's where we'll go. Um, and I think I would have gone um, too, but the first year of our marriage, um, our lives took an unexpected turn. Uh, just about eight months into our brand new marriage, my mom's sudden dizzy spells led to memory loss in a matter of days, and a few days after that, she felt vegetative. Um, And after five weeks of bedside sitting and horrible suffering, um, she lost a battle to cancer we didn't even know existed, uh, leaving my heart shredded and the hearts of my unbelieving family the same way. Um, So about a year and a half after her loss, we began kind of thinking about this overseas ministry. Um, We started interviewing with some of the companies like Pioneers and Wycliffe Bible Translators. And as we did, I felt my heart retreating. Um, I felt like the emotional foundation I was standing on was totally faulty. Um, There wasn't a way I could leave our hurting, broken, lost family Um, to go find other hurting, broken, lost families to minister to. So um, we needed to stay here. I felt such a fear of disappointing Gabe, Um, especially after this was a stipulation for us proceeding um, with marriage early in our relationship. Well, if you know my husband, you know how entirely gracious and patient and kind he is. Um, I'm going to cry too, like everybody else. Good grief. Um, He kissed my forehead, pulled me into his chest, and told me that he didn't regret marrying me (laughs) after I killed his dreams of being overseas, Um, and that we should begin praying about other ways to minister here. And I said, good idea. We were ready to give up everything, our home, our food, our culture, our family, um, everything, and we should be willing to do the same here. So in a matter of months, I had about seven separate run-ins with foster care, meeting people whose parents had fostered, high school friends who were adopting through the foster care system, relative placements that were moving towards guardianship, and the list goes on. That year, I also happened to have a student in my second grade class that I would have dreams about taking home. Um, I worried about him, and I told my husband that if there was ever an opportunity, we were going to take him in. Um, And so I prayed a lot for this student and felt just, in general, a heavy, heavy heart for broken kids. And then it dawned on me that all of these conversations and things that were happening, it was um, God's not-so-subtle hints that we were supposed to move forward with foster care. So I prayed another week or so and decided I should probably bring it up with Gabe. So I got home from work and seriously had him sit down on the couch, and he's probably scared out of his mind. And I proceeded to cry my eyes out and told him that God was calling us to foster. And um, 
After that compelling, very evidence-based request, can you believe that he said no? Well, he did. He said, um, well, my initial reaction is no, uh, but we can keep praying about it, honey, maybe do a little bit of research. Um, so apparently my high emotion plea wasn't convincing to him. Um, without him, I think I could get myself into some serious messes out of emotional response. But we rented a book from the library um, called Another Place at the Table, and after reading chapter one, we both cried our eyes out and signed up for pride classes. Um, I wasn't crazy after all. So fast forward about seven months before, I think we hadn't even gotten our paper license in the mail. We got a call for our son, Martel. Um, and while they said his name was Isaiah and gave us the wrong age, it was the best call we've ever received in our lives. Um, since Martel, we've had several calls from our agency to take many different children, and since he came into our lives about three and a half years ago, we've only said yes to two other children. And here is where the story gets a bit more difficult to write. Um, here's where there's much shame and pain and sadness intertwined with our foster care journey. Um, obviously with Martel, though he came to us at eight weeks, his story still includes brokenness and trauma and loss. Um, but here is where it became undeniable that we were parenting kids who'd experienced more evil than we could ever believe to be true. Here's where it became more difficult for me to believe that a good, kind, compassionate, and caring God could see their pain and not intervene. I'm sure, not sure what exactly to share about our specific journeys with specific children. The road has been far from easy for us. I think when we as Christians or just as people in general dream and pray about caring for some of the world's most vulnerable children, we can idealize what that will be like. We underestimate the tight and sprawling grip that trauma has on their little bodies and minds. They're hardwired for struggle. Many of them have lived out our worst nightmares and just can't seem to shake the anxiety or heart racing panic. Our first placement after Martel was a little girl who stood frozen in heaps of wreckage. Domestic abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, neglect, the whole gamut. The thing about her was that she had a way of capturing your heart. Maybe it was her dainty nature or her big green eyes or her wild hair, but she wanted to know you and she wanted to be known and she desperately wanted to be loved unconditionally. She wanted to trust, but in typical attachment disorder fashion, she would, she would sabotage it all as soon as we got close. The pain was too great for her, but I have to believe that the pain was not too great for our God. When we got the call for her just over two years ago, the list of abuses resulting and resulting negative behaviors led me to believe that we would never bring her into our home when we had a 10-month-old Martel to protect. So when I nonchalantly brought it up to my husband, um, he responded with tears in his eyes that he thought we should really consider taking her in. So when we prayed over the situation, I was so convicted of my callousness. And I felt that God whispered to my soul that we had the opportunity to carry some of her burden for her so she didn't have to carry it herself. He reminded me, God did, 
that the goal throughout the course of this life isn't nor ever will be the American dream. Remember earlier when I mentioned that grip culture has on us, convincing us that we deserve comfort? Well, here we go again. <laughs> so just 24 hours later, this beautiful girl walked through our red front door into her fourth foster home in just three months. She was visibly unbathed, trailing behind her bags of clothes riddled with maggots, quiet and shy and oh so broken. Throughout the course of the 10 months that we shared our home with this wrecked little girl, we became broken right alongside her. Her anxiety and explosive tantrums, self-protection and destructiveness was like a palpable spirit inside of our home, a weight that was felt not just by her, but each of us. As we corrected and retaught, disciplined, loved, and endured, we felt as though we were drowning, isolated and in over our heads. We found that we weren't often invited to play dates. Um, she was a bit of a mess. And at the end of her time with us, um, we just felt really lonely. Um, during that time, we became pregnant knowing she was scheduled to return to her home in just two short weeks. Um, when her return home date was pushed back and pushed back and pushed back, um, I started showing signs of having a miscarriage around eight weeks of pregnancy due to what the doctor said was unnecessary and unhealthy stress. So Gabe and I, in essence, felt like we were in a place of needing to decide which child would be with us to stay, our unborn baby or the little girl who was scheduled to return home shortly after. So we chose to have her removed from our home and placed with her aunt for the remaining time of her placement. Um, there is an unmatched depth of shame and sadness surrounding this decision. Um, it's difficult to explain to me because I do feel as though the right decision was made. But as you can imagine, we feel as though we failed this girl. When she left, my husband and I showed many different signs of post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, we knew that it would be a while until we would take another foster placement after her. We needed time to heal from the wounds that we seemed to absorb from her. For as we got in there, um, right up close to her hurt, in attempts to put, apply deep compression to her bleeding heart, we found that we ourselves were bleeding as well. In our season of rest, we had our Esme and adopted our boy Martel and experienced some healing. There are a few calls from our agency that we received and declined during that time. So knowing what you know about our past with said little girl, you can imagine when we got this phone call for a little boy, this last spring, fear rose up in our chests and throats as we considered, what if Gabe's anxiety comes back again? What if it's hard on our kids? What if we don't have enough energy? What will people say? We're going to look crazy. <laughs> what if we fail him too? It's hard to explain what rested the questions for me again. I felt like I had a quiet spirit when that whispered, carried this little boy on the backs of your privilege. It won't be easy. In fact, it will be really hard. But you get this chance to love through the loss of yourself and teach your kids what it looks like to truly sacrifice on behalf of the broken. So we said yes. And our time with this little guy was really hard. He had no idea how to receive love. With a history of brokenness and neglect, 
Appropriate behavior was foreign. He was constantly doing things that were unsafe, reckless, and unhealthy. He was two, but he barely spoke. I'm sorry, I'm like... <laughs> uh, oh, thanks. You're just a little provider today. Uh, yeah, he was two, but he barely spoke and qualified for four therapies a week. He was smack dab in the middle age-wise with our other two kids. So our son Martel was three, he was two, and our little Esme was one. Um, Martel is naturally very sensitive, um, and we found that this little boy was constantly causing tears and fights to the point where Martel gradually entered this passive doormat kind of behavior, almost a little bit depressed and desperate for attention. Esme swung the opposite way in her little feisty nature. After getting bullied and pushed around by this new older brother, she became unnecessarily or necessarily feisty, screaming and pushing and never getting walked on. Um, after close to six months with this little boy, we felt like everything in our lives was suffering. I'm being, if I'm being 100% honest, our walks with Jesus suffered, our marriage, our home, health, family dynamic, patience, everything. People would walk into our home and babysit for a couple hours and would walk out saying, I have no idea how you do that all day, every day. It's nuts in here. We had interrupted birth order, um, and I think it had a dramatic impact on the way that our family functioned and performed. I fought an internal battle with myself daily, convincing myself that we'd be fools to have him moved to a new home, that we would be a part of the problem, um, not the solution, that we'd again be failures. I wanted my children to learn compassion, patience, forgiveness, empathy, sacrifice, when I wasn't teaching them that as their mommy. Our decision in the end was to have this little boy removed from our home and moved into the home of some friends of ours, people who also loved Jesus and who'd been waiting for over two years to get a placement. They had only one son who was seven, and they both work outside of the home, and that sort of fit couldn't be more perfect for this little boy. So, why the heck do you have me giving this testimony today? A person who was mommy to two children, not biologically hers, and though close, was unable to complete either case. Um, I've been wrestling with that since the moment that I was asked to give this testimony, if I'm honest with you. Um, I've been silencing that shame for months and asking Jesus for his answer to that question. And while I think it's because I believe in the beauty and the power of the gospel, I believe in its redemption and its power to save. I believe that as a person, girl, not that you'd believe it today, but I usually keep it pretty together. And who can seem like it our family is perfect from the outside looking in. It's important for me to see the beauty in our frailty. It's important for me to need Jesus for my daily bread and for me to, as one of my favorite bloggers, Shannon Martin, put it, to see God's graciousness when I look at our big ideas. And he says, we're dreaming too small to think we could do it alone. We needed people. We need people when we foster. When we decided to take in the sweet ones God called us to, we accepted the placements from hearts of humility before the Lord. We answered yes when we felt convicted that we needed to flush out our ideas of safety, comfort, stability, contentment, 
in exchange for the dream that Christ has for us being his body here on earth, caring for the widows and orphans in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt us. We're responding to our conviction after studying the book of Ruth that she didn't remain in her palace of privilege. She opened wide the gates to the hurting. I do believe that God is glorified by our yeses. I do believe that for the time he had those children in our home, and for the time we've had Martel, we've brought Jesus glory because as it reads in Acts 20, we helped the weak and heeded Jesus' words that, in, that it is far more blessed to give than to receive. In our empty estates of giving to these kids, we felt more rewarded in faith than at our fullest. I'm convinced that when we lose our hands into the heart of Jesus, into the hands of Jesus, whether easy or unbelievably hard, we give to him permission to enter into our tender, guarded places where he gets to work. He asks us over and over to lay down our pride, to let go of opinions, and he asks us for our hand so he can lead us, sometimes through deserts, but always through, so we can be walked right up to the cool water of his presence. Foolish to the world, but eternally ever so wise. So maybe we messed it all up. Maybe we really did for these kids. I do believe that God is bigger. I'm still working on the inhumility count others as more significant than yourselves thing. The word says that this mind is ours through Christ Jesus. I pray that we would have the mind of Christ. I pray that we as the church would respond quickly in obedience to him. And I pray that the sweet children in these deeply broken homes would somehow know that they have been created uniquely them in the image of a God who loves them more deeply than we or anyone else ever could. So you guys, we carry our crosses to the next time we get a call. And I ask that you would consider carrying them alongside us. Help us to not only support these little kids, but their parents. The moms and dads who so bravely chose life without any knowledge as to how to support it, protect it, guard it, or guide it. What an opportunity for us to be the church. The call is clear. May we grow in humility as we fumble through our responses to the God who knows all of our imperfections and weaknesses and knows all the ways we will mess it up, but chooses to use us anyway. That's all I have for you. So thanks. All right. So we've heard a lot today about God's call and how we can um, love the least of these. And I know a lot of you are... um, are probably thinking, um, like, I hear the call and I, I want to respond, but I'm, I'm just not quite sure um, what that looks like for my family right now. Um, and so um, at this time, we want to give you an opportunity to hear about some of the organizations that we have here um, who are able to help you and lead you um, where your family is, um, yeah, where God is leading your family and what, what steps to take next. And so if you're here from a professional organization, I would love you to come up and join me on the stage. 
Um, and what we're going to do is just give you um, an opportunity to, to share who you are and what organization you work for. Um, you can give a little bit of information about what you do. Um, that way, after prayer, um, people can go back and, and visit your booth um, and, and hopefully be able to have some more just practical information on how to respond to these calls. So if you want to come up. We're so grateful that you all could come. Um, yeah, we're so excited when we kind of just sent out this, um, these emails to see if you could all come, and then so many responded, um, saying that you could, and it's super exciting. Um, I guess it's a different order, but if you want to flip your programs over, you'll find each of these organizations on the back. Um, and so, yeah, I'll just hand the microphone off to you, Dana, and we can go from there. I don't know. If Hi, my name is Dana McConkey. Um, I work for Illini Christian Ministries in Champaign. Um, we are a child welfare agency. Our official mission statement is to glorify God by restoring and empowering families. Um, we have two separate ministry areas, adoption and family care. I work in the adoption area, um, and our primary adoption services are to provide home studies for both international and domestic adoptions. And then we have a really small domestic placement program. So I'd love to talk to you guys. If you have questions, I'll be at the ICM booth afterwards. And I represent our family care ministries at Illini Christian Ministries. And that's a parenting partners program and Safe Families for Children. Um, and both of them are there to help families that are going through crisis um, to be able to maintain keeping their children in their home. Uh, temporarily, those kids are hosted in somebody else's home, and our goal is to wrap a community of support both around the family who's hosting those kids as well as the placing family who is not with their kids right now. Hi, I'm Mary Adams, and I coordinate the simulcast of the Empowered to Connect conference. Um, we hosted at the First Christian Church in April. I have information in the back on that. Um, Empowered to Connect has some of the very best resources available for foster care and adoption. Um, as you have already heard, this journey is hard, and um, trauma affects kids um, every cell in their body is affected by trauma. And if you try to parent the way all your friends parent, unless I've already been to TBRI training, it's not going to work, okay? So <laughs> you need to get the book, come to the conference or something. Um, so um, um, I'd be happy to answer questions about that. My name is Greta Henry, and I'm the director of Living Alternatives, a pregnancy resource center and Mercy's Refuge. And how we get involved with um, precious birth mothers. And we help them walk through adoption plans. We're not an adoption agency, but we help them walk through the whole plan of it. And it's just my privilege to be part of that. We do many things because women come in that are choosing life or choosing adoption or choosing abortion. And we want to have them have all three options put before them and help them. If they're choosing to do an adoption plan, we want to help them walk through it. It's my privilege to help them with that. I'm Katie Martin with The Baby Fold. Um, we are an organization out of Bloomington Normal. Some of you may have heard of us. Um, we have adoption services, foster services over there. We have special education. We used to have a residential treatment center. I'm specifically with the adoption preservation, which is part of our family and community outreach um, support. So we have, we serve Champaign County. We serve 22 counties actually in this area. 
um, and we are doing in-home therapy with uh, any family who has been through adoption or guardianship cases. So we can serve any of those families and kids often with the emotional and behavioral needs, um, kind of as what Mary was saying with the trauma and attachment issues that we often see with these kiddos. So I'd be glad to talk to you in the back. I'm Rachel Kramer, Program Director director at Lutheran Social Services here in Champaign and our Danville office. Um, we do foster care and then foster care conversion adoptions. So, um, and we definitely have a lot of, we also have a special needs contract with the department, so we have a lot of special needs kids, either medical or behavioral that we service to. Um, and so we do foster care and foster care licensing and all of that. Hi, I'm Allie Caldwell from Lutheran. Sorry, I'm really nervous. <laughs> um, I am the licensing worker at LSSI, so if you guys um, have any questions about the licensing process or anything, I'm here to help. Okay. I'm Julie Slabolski. I represent Department of Children and Family Services. My role is a foster parent support specialist, and I work with um, our resource recruiter. I've been a foster parent for 20 years and had three adoptions. Um, and I, I appreciate the stories and, and the uh, testimonies that have been shared today because they're true. Um, it's worth it. And um, so I just give that background for myself if you have any questions. I will say that DCFS's goal is first to serve, to serve families. So our goal is first to reunify families if possible. But of course, we all know that that is not always possible. So um, I'm happy to talk to you about uh, fostering and adoption. My name is Harriet Kirsch. I'm with the Center for Youth and Family Solutions. We do licensing for foster home. We also have the adoption process. Um, I would like to say being a foster parent is very, very hard. And when you have to give notice, you have to take in consideration your needs. It doesn't mean you're a failure. It means you made the right choice that at this time that placement is not a good placement. And that's okay. We also have therapy, so we have the counseling process as well. And like to offer to our foster parents if that's a need. Um, it's a hard thing to be a foster parent. You're opening up your home to everybody to say, do this, do that, you can't do this, why are you doing that? It's hard, it's a very, very hard process. Um, so again, come to our table, uh, talk to us. Um, it's a hard job, but it's very rewarding. And um, thank you guys. Hi, I'm Allison Christman. A little hoarse, got a cold, um, getting over one. Um, I'm with CYFS, I'm one of the licensing representatives. I see some familiar faces out there today. Um, so I help navigate through the licensing process. We call foster homes to find placements. We support them in any way possible we can. Um, as Harriet said, we have an adoption program as well. Um, but thank you for all coming out today. Sounds good. All right, so um, I think sometimes it's really easy to kind of compartmentalize. We have, oh, we have, you know, the families over here who they're doing the work, and then we have these workers. They're, you know, they're just professionals. They, you know, this is their job. Um, but yet we see from all of these women who have come um, that the heart is not absent from these, from these organizations. Um, they very much love these children and the fatherless. And so... Um, we want to take a little bit of time to allow some of them to share 
um, their professional testimony, um, but yet you'll see there's definitely a heart there as well. And so um, first we have um, Greta, and then later we'll have Jesse from ICM. Thank you so much. It's my privilege to be here, and I've already been crying, so I'll probably cry some more here too. But let me start um, my, um, let's just pray. Father, I just thank you right now for this opportunity to share your heart with these precious people. And I just ask that you just be present and you keep um, just pricking their heart to do what you've called them to do. And I thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, first of all, I'm going to hopefully be able to share this quickly, but um, 37 years ago, uh, we had a a little boy that we had born, and um, I, I, uh, my husband and I, we were excited about that. But we were at a, a church one day, and we saw a little a little um, notebook paper there that said you have room for one more, and it was about the foster care system. And so um, we did, and and lo and behold, not long. It didn't take real long. There was a lot of process. This was in Colorado. We ended up being a foster parent to a 13-year-old. I was 23 at the time. And um, anyway, he's 51 now, and I'm 61. And I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. Because we had some really hard times. Oh, my goodness. I could think I could write a book about it. But it was all worth it. But I know, I know the pain and the hurt and all that this precious couple and many of you have gone through. And I understand. He was 13. But the one thing that I do know, and I believe there have been seeds planted in all the ones that you have had that have gone back into homes and so forth. They have a seed that's been planted of Jesus. And one day, they will. There'll be more people that come across their path. But Jeff is his name, and he came to know the Lord Jesus. And um, he's married and has three children, two grandchildren, and um, he gives glory to God. So I'm just thankful for that. But that's just the beginning of what I wanted to talk about. The Pregnancy Resource Center, um, I've been the director since 2001, and there have been uh, the first month that I worked there in May of 2001, there was a woman that came into the into the um, pregnancy center, a little place over on Clark Street, and she um, said, you know, I'm pregnant. I've been calling these places, and nobody helps me. Can you help me find a family? And I go, oh, okay, we will, you know. So I was very not learned a lot about it, but I ended up helping her, and that was um, back in 2001. And um, what I wanted to I wanted to say that about that was because um, God has been placing adoption in my pathway for all these years, and um, there's even been an, an, an occurrence at our home where our neighbor had, I was on the prayer chain of the pregnancy center, and there was a neighbor that said her son was living with a woman, and she was pregnant with another baby, and they were going to have an abortion, and I said, oh, no, no, help, let me help them, and so lo and behold, this was 20, about 24 years ago, um, they ended up not having an abortion, and later they came and said, well, 
um, how about if um, he came knocking at the door? He says, can you help me, Greta? And I said, well, sure. I said, he said, well, um, we want to have, um, we want to do an adoption plan. I said, well, when are you due? And he said, uh, the baby and the mom are in the car right now. And so God has placed adoption opportunities again and again, and God has opened those doors. But to make it now um, available now, I wanted to go to the pregnancy center. The pregnancy center... It's a place where I said earlier where women come and they are um, deciding about their pregnancy. They're trying to see, you know, is parenting, is um, adoption, you know, I want, they want to look and see, you know, abortion. We let them see all those things and then we help them with parenting or adoption. We do not help them with any form of abortion, but we give them the information that's needed so they see what happens. But anyway, so I wanted to just share with you, this is something that I wanted to um, very plainly let you know that these precious birth moms, <laughs> they're heroes and they are all over the place. I've had the opportunity to be involved with these women that have placed their little babies, and we're going to see a little video that they made. This is several years ago, but um, where they have placed their babies in a home, and the adoptions um, have been very good. Um, there have been some that have been a little bit harder, but um, overall, it's amazing. These wounded, hurting women that have chosen to do adoption plans, and we're able to walk beside them and help them to walk through it, even though we're not an adoption agency. And um, that's why I wanted to share with you all the importance to know that there truly are women out there in our community. We have 12 centers, um, 10 of them in Illinois, two in Indiana, and we've had adoptions in most of the different centers in the different areas. But there's women that are saying, you know, I don't want to have an abortion, and I cannot raise my child. And so would you help me? And so we walk through that. And I have developed such relationships with these women that a lot of them are like my daughters, <laughs> to say the least. And there was something about holding those little babies in your arm, as I know that a lot of you with international and all the other forms of adoption, but there's something about it. It's like a life has been saved a life have been, has been saved. And it's just awesome to me to be able to be part of this, to be the love that they need, to be that expression of Jesus to these women that are choosing to do an adoption plan. And I know it's a journey. It's not an easy journey. It's not easy. But it's worth it in the long run. And I thank the Lord for that. So I know I wanted to share with you um, the way that we work is um, if the birth mom that's choosing to do an adoption plan, um, there's much involved with it. But if they have an adoption agency, if they have ICM or just wherever that they're choosing, we a lot of times work with a, um, an adoption attorney, and she will help walk all of the paths. And I talked with her. And um, she gives informational packets. If this is something that you're interested in, um, she's um, got informational packets. And she has once every other month um, an actual meeting where she can meet with any possible potential adoptive families for this. But this is just another avenue of seeing God at work. Um, I'm just so thankful that he's let me be part of this because these babies are so precious. And when you look at this video, you'll see examples 
Um, I almost like to talk with it, but I won't. But um, there's like a birth mom that's holding her baby for the first time in the hospital. There's, and they've all been okayed. I mean, they've said yes. There's a video of um, these little babies that are, um, uh, you'll see different siblings with them too. You'll see all different kinds of um, talking, like there's one, and it's hard to hear the one, but she so willingly wanted the best for her baby. They're heroes, and I'm out there to stand and help the moms. I'm there to help them to see that Jesus loves them and that he's got a plan for their life. And I love it when there's that open adoption between the, uh, the parents and the children. It's wonderful. It's very healing for them and for all, too, and that seems the way that it's going in the adoption realm in the United States. But anyway, I won't tarry anymore, but I just wanted to share that with you, and I want to share this video with you, but thank you. Just like all of you, um, the Holy Spirit has led you here today. Um, the Holy Spirit is inside of me and is um, willing to speak through me, even if my voice is shaky or if uh, I start shaking myself a little bit. So um, I just want to thank you, first of all, just for being here, for being open to whatever it is that God's calling you to, whether that's um, being vulnerable and sharing your story um, and being willing to connect with people with those stories, or if this is the first time you're kind of taking a step to learn more about adoption, foster care, or other ways that you can step in to um, people who are hurting lives. Um, and I'm just glad you're here and that you're doing that. Um, my name's Jesse, and I get to work with Illini Christian Ministries with the Safe Families for Children program. And um, I love it. It's a blessing for me to get to uh, step into families' lives who are hurting and who are vulnerable, but also get to see God's people move. Um, and so I want to start just with telling you a little bit about why I love Safe Family so much from a personal story from my, my life, and then just tell you a little bit more about Safe Families, and then we can talk about it um, after it's over if you have questions. Um, so I don't have a huge sob story. Like, I don't have a great, um, like, moving testimony when it comes to certain things. But I've been thinking a lot about why I'm here and why God has placed me in this position. And I uh, grew up with a single mom. My parents uh, divorced when I was in preschool. And so I grew up most of my life with my mom. And... Um, my mom was a believer and went to church before and didn't feel welcome going to the church that she was at before the divorce anymore. And so uh, we church hopped for a long time. And I enjoyed going to church, but it wasn't until my mom found somewhere consistently that I loved the church. Um, and I found it as a home for me. I felt like it was somewhere I belonged, somewhere where not only I belonged, but I had something to offer, right? I had something to give because God had given to me and had given me the capability to give to other people. Um, unfortunately, it was a really different story for my mom. She looked around the room and she didn't see families who looked like hers. And she didn't see people who were willing to open their arms and their hearts to her because she didn't have this picture-perfect family. 
That's not to say that there weren't people who tried, and I don't want to not recognize that at all, but it was really hard for her to open her, her heart and to, to walk into the doors of church. And so eventually, uh, she ended up leaving the church. And um, I was in middle school at that time, and it, you know, that's kind of a defining moment in your life when you're in middle school. And um, she stopped going. It wasn't a place she felt good about going to anymore. And um, because people had poured into my life in the church and had helped me feel welcome and at home, I decided to continue going to church even when my mom didn't anymore. And I loved it, and I loved having people pour into my life and, again, having something to offer. I've often looked back at my family and my life and just my mom and wondered what her life could look like if people had opened their arms and their heart to her and made her feel welcome in the church. Um, We weren't homeless. (laughs) She didn't lose a major job. Yes, there were financial struggles that came with being a single mom, but there wasn't like this major crisis in our life because of it. And the reason why is because we had family support. So my mom had her family who were willing to step into that. But there are a lot of people in Champaign County who don't have family who can step in when they're going through something hard, Um, who don't have friends who will lend a helping hand. And they are isolated. And when something hard happens, whether that's a divorce, the loss of a job, a mental health issue springing up, they don't have people who will step into their lives. Um, And maybe you're a lot like me and you found a sense of belonging and hope and um, home when you walk into the church, or maybe you're a lot like my mom and you feel like the black sheep when you walk in the doors and you don't know how to connect with people at the church and you feel unwelcome. Um, but either way, you're here for a reason, and I think you know what the church could look like, right? You know either what it was like to feel belonging or what you hope to gain from the church. And uh, why I love Save Families is because what it's about is mobilizing the body of Christ to be the body of Christ to people who don't have that family, Um, who don't feel welcome anywhere. And so uh, specifically, we work with moms um, and sometimes dads and sometimes two-parent families, but it's usually moms who are going through some type of crisis. Again, that could be homelessness, could be losing a job, could be a mental health issue, um, or several different things, and are struggling to care for their children. And what we do is we provide temporary host families who will take in those kiddos and love on them for a short period of time while mom maintains all full custody of that child through, throughout the whole time. And then the, the members of the church, we need lots and lots of volunteers, wrap a community of support around both the placing family, so that mama who's hurting, as well as the host family who takes in these extra kiddos, because it's hard. <laughs> There is nothing about what I'm talking about that's easy or or, um, not messy. It's very messy. Um, But we need everybody, and that's what the body of Christ is, right? 
um, I'm a fingernail. <laughs> and those are important, right? We love having our fingernails, but um, I wouldn't represent Jesus very well if all I was was a fingernail. Um, but I need people to be the fingers, and I need people to be the, the hands. I need people to be the feet. I need people to be the head. And when we all come together to wrap around families who are hurting and who are vulnerable, as well as the people who do these really hard things, like taking extra kiddos in their house, um, we can fully show who Jesus is and who, um, who he can be in those lives, and it changes lives. Um, I have worked with several moms who have felt like they don't have anybody and when their child comes back home, they say that they feel like they have family now. And um, you create an extended family for people that's not blood, but it is uh, still family. And um, I've seen people join churches. I've seen people be baptized. Um, I've also seen that not happen. But the seeds of Jesus' love have been planted in many, many families here in Champaign County and outside of it through Safe Families for Children, and I would love to help you guys be a part of that. Um, a few specific ways you can get involved. One is by hosting kids. It looks a lot like foster care, right, but it's a different flavor of it. Um, but more than that, uh, there's other volunteers. There's family coaches who go and check in on our host families to see what they are, to see how they're doing, um, to pray with them, to encourage them, to read scripture with them, and also make sure that the child's safe and that they have another adult to talk to. There's family friends who mentor and walk alongside these placing parents who are um, hurting and vulnerable. Uh, they might help them reach their goals, but more importantly, they're going to get to know them, right? They're going to be a friend. Uh, share a cup of coffee. Do the things that you, you do with your friends so that when you invite them to church, they have somebody to sit with and somebody that they can um, just feel, again, at home with. And then there is also this beautiful thing called resource friends. And resource friends are all those people who do the lovely things like uh, bringing you a meal. <laughs> um, and uh, maybe they would buy an extra pack of diapers for our host families. Or um, maybe they have an awesome skill like you guys might know how to budget or might know how to, um, do, to tutor or different things like that. And those are skills that you can offer in any way through safe families. And so... Um, that's what I love about it is we need everybody to be the body of Christ. And um, so just bringing it back to my story, uh, I think that it's so important that when people walk inside the doors of church, they feel like they belong and that they're welcome. And I believe that Safe Families is a way that we can reach people in our county who are hurting and who um, don't feel that anywhere. Um, and bring them closer to the gospel, which is ultimately what we all need. Uh, so thanks so much. I've been asked to give the uh, closing challenge for today. Um, that video was <laughs> plenty challenging enough. I think most of what I've prepared in the next few minutes, uh, and it will be hopefully just a few minutes, um, uh, is more of a confession than a challenge, but I do hope that you'll find it to be challenging and encouraging <clears throat> no matter where you are in this process, whether you're, you, you have adopted or whether you're just gathering information. Um, if, you, if you have a Bible in front of you and you want to turn to Jeremiah 19, um, I'm going to read a passage from there. And also, 
as we get started, um, you've been sitting and listening for a long time. So please, if you're like me, it's good for me to get up and walk around and stand and listen at times. So if if you need to do that, I will not be offended. It it won't be distracting for me. Um, So feel free to get up, walk around, whatever. Um, uh, I know you've been sitting for a while. Jeremiah chapter 19, starting in verse 1, says this. Thus says the Lord, go, buy a potter's earthenware flask and take some of the elders of the people, some of the elders of the priests, and go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom at the entry of the potsherd gate and proclaim there the words that I tell you. You shall say, hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing such disaster upon this place that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle because the people have forsaken me and have profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods whom neither they, whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known. And because they have filled this place with the blood of innocence and have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place shall no more be called Topheth, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. And in this place I will make void the plans of Judah and Jerusalem and will cause their people to fall by the sword before their enemies and by the hand of those who seek their life. I will give their dead bodies for food to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the earth and I will make this city a horror, a thing to be hissed at. Everyone who passes by it will be horrified and will hiss because of all its wounds. And I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and their daughters, and everyone shall eat the flesh of his neighbor in the siege and in the, and in the distress with which their enemies and those who seek their life afflict them. <clears throat> Idolatry is a terrible thing. Ever since the fall of humanity in Genesis chapter three, all human beings are bent towards idol worship. All people are born into sin and all people have a natural tendency to replace the worship of God with the worship of lesser things. Everyone in this room is an idolater. We all worship someone, and when left in our natural state, apart from the sovereign work of God, that someone will always be ourselves at the root. You are the biggest competitor for the glory of God in your life. And throughout human history, when adults are caught up in any idolatry, those who are most negatively affected are almost always children. In the passage I just read, we see that parents were delivering their children up to be sacrificed in the idolatrous worship of false gods. In Exodus 1, we read about the Pharaoh who came into power. He did not know Joseph. Since he did not fear God, he oppressed the Israelite children and even called for the killing of all the male Israelite children. 
We're also familiar with the famous story of the destruction of all the firstborn male children of Egypt as the final plague God sends upon the Egyptians because of Pharaoh's disobedience. In, in the New Testament, we know that King Herod commanded the destruction of all the male children two years old and younger. See, the fact is, throughout biblical history, children are often sacrificed at the altars of idolatry. And that is the case for all of human history. Now, I know none of us here is advocating for the destruction of any children. In fact, we are doing the opposite, right? But I do want us to consider one thing. Oftentimes, adoption and foster care are presented as though these courageous mothers and fathers are coming in to rescue helpless children from the clutches of poverty or abuse or starvation. Or we hear people say things like, man, it takes a special person to do that. Or you sure are doing a great work. Or those kids are so blessed to have you. And let me say, I am not saying those things should not be said. I am certainly not trying to put anyone down for, for encouraging foster parents and adoptive parents and any parents. I don't have an issue with that at all. Let's say those things. Let's encourage one another, please. But what if God is calling you to foster care or adoption, not just for you to rescue children from desperate circumstances. That's part of it, it's huge. But what if his plan is to actually rescue you from your own idolatry? What if God has bigger plans for you than for you to be simply the knight in shining armor swooping in to rescue a helpless child? As if that's not big enough, right? Here is a more pointed question. What if you are actually the problem? What if your sinfulness and your pride are actually on the chopping block? What if your idolatry is so dangerous and so destructive to your own heart and to your own family that God is actually about to blow up your comfortable life by exposing sin in your heart that you didn't even know existed? Why am I talking about this? Why am I saying these things? It's because this has happened to me. I am preaching to myself here. And I think that if you end up fostering or adopting a child, you'll have a similar experience. See, there are, there are four idols in my own heart that I didn't even know existed. Or maybe I may have known they existed, but I didn't know the seriousness of them until God over the past few years has exposed them to me over and over and caused me to see the utter sinfulness of my own expectations. Now, there's way more than four, right? I could, the list could go on. I had to cut it off at four because I only have a few minutes and I've already used a few minutes. But as, as I go through these four idols, please know that I'm preaching to myself I'm aware of these things because they are true of me. There could be many more. You may not see these in yourself, but that just means there are probably others. The first for me is the idol of comfort. 
This is first because this is the worst for me. I love my comfort. I love my clean house and my quiet nights. I love being left alone to read and work on sermons. I love watching what, what I want to watch on TV and eating what I want to eat without interruption. I want to go to sleep and wake up when it's comfortable. But God has been exposing this idol with his truth. First, he's helped me to see that there will be plenty of time for comfort and rest in the new heaven and the new earth. I look forward to that day. But now is a time to be on mission. And second, he's helped me understand in more tangible ways that my life is not about making myself more comfortable, but about pouring my life out so that others can experience his love. If you get involved in adoption or foster care, it will make you uncomfortable in ways you hadn't even thought of. You will have children in your home and you'll begin to think you made a mistake. You'll wish you had not said yes. There will be drool and disobedience and months of potty training and every bodily fluid and temper tantrums and bed bugs and head lice. We had, we've had all this in our home. And it's all worth it. Because in the midst of it all is an opportunity to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And after all, was it not Jesus who left the glory of heaven to enter into our sinful world? Philippians 2 reminds us, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Another idol, the second one that, that I've had to come to terms with is my idol of having my own children. I've heard people over the years say things like, I just don't know if I could love them like I would love my own children. And deep down, I would pridefully scoff at how sinful and, and how selfish that sounded. How can they say that? They're so sinful, such selfish people. That is until we got our first placement. Now I see that I I'm actually the sinful one. Over and over I have struggled to love children that I don't consider my own. But God is helping me to see that first my biological children are not my own children anyway. Just like everything else I have, they belong to God. He's entrusted them to me to be managed and stewarded for his glory, but their lives and their hearts belong to him. And second, when it comes to my relationship with my heavenly father, am I not the adopted one? I am. I am the one who doesn't belong. I am the one who has rebelled and spit in his face. I have no right to be called his child. And yet for no other reason but his free sovereign grace, he has set his love on me, called me his own. The third idol that I've had to deal with is the idol of having cute children. This is the idolatry that the Lord has been revealing to me, something I was too proud to admit. I want 
cute children. I don't want ugly children. It's hard to hear. It's my heart. I don't want to be the dad with the special needs kid, right? I don't want to be the dad with the kid who has the deformity or the gross medical problem or the baby out of wedlock or the seizures. No, I want the beautiful kids. I want the family photos that look so clean and, and put together, right, with the, the white clothes on the beach with the sand and the sunset, right? <laughs> That's what I want. I want all the recognition and the glory for the beautiful family and none of the mess. God's had different plans. Instead of giving me what I wanted, he's helped change my definition of beauty. Beauty is being created in the image of God. I knew that, right? I would tell you that. Now I know. I've seen it. I've seen how that truth. I have to believe that now or else my heart isn't right. Beauty is loving those whom the world says are unlovable. Beauty is a steadfast commitment to the good of someone else expecting nothing in return. And beauty often leaves the world speechless or even scoffing. Having cute kids is temporarily significant but putting the gospel on display is eternally significant. And again, who am I to put such expectations upon God when I am the ugly one? I am the despicable one anyway, the one who has willingly chosen mud pies in the slums over the goodness of my creator. But still, God's word to me is one of love. As 1 Samuel 16 says, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And fourth, my idolatry of fear. The fact is, I am very afraid. I'm terrified, actually, of all kinds of things in my life. I'm terrified that I won't get any of the things I've already mentioned. I'm terrified I won't have any of my own children. I'm terrified I won't have cute children. I'm terrified that being a dad won't make me feel loved or liked or praised. I'm afraid of getting laughed at by others. I'm afraid of more, of more children costing more money. I'm afraid of how my children will turn out. What if they grow up to be prodigals or criminals? or molesters. Do you have these thoughts? I do. And they go on and on, fears. But if you're here today, and you are afraid, and maybe this message has increased your fear, please know that God is at work destroying those fears helping us all depend more on him. Because the whole point of this message is to say that God is at work in you, destroying your idols. That is a good and glorious thing. 
So I want to leave you with just a few passages of scripture that speak to our fear. I need these. I didn't realize how much I needed them until I prepared this section and I began reading just passage over pa- passage after passage on fear and God's response to our fear. So I'm just gonna read like five of these and I'll be done. Listen to what God's word says to those who are afraid. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. But now says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And last, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.